0: Welcome to LIVES, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is poet, Jamaica Baldwin. In today's show, Baldwin talks about the cathartic nature of poetry, the themes explored in her debut four-length poetry collection, Bone Language, including race, politics, familial heritage, and womanhood, and why she has been described as a poet of power. Baldwin also talks about the experiences that have shaped her life and, as well as discussing her writing, Baldwin will read some of her poems. I'm very interested in the role
1: of language and how language is used specifically to contain, right, but also the work that we can do as poets to use language and kind of disrupt it or mystify it in different interesting ways.
0: Jamaica Baldwin is a poet and educator originally from Santa Cruz, California. Her first book, Bone Language, Will be published by Yes Yes Books in the summer of 2023. Her work has appeared in numerous literary journals and among her many accolades are a 2023 Pushcart Prize and a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship. Baldwin has served as a community-based teaching artist including a generative writing workshop for women in Guatemala. Baldwin is currently the Associate Editor of Prairie Schooner at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln where she is pursuing her PhD in English with a focus on poetry and women's and gender studies. Jamaica Baldwin, welcome to LIVES.
1: Thank you, Stuart. It's lovely to be here.
0: In the opening couple of lines of your poem, the end of sorrow is not happiness. You write, I've gained many things since cancer. Poetry, extra weight, a distrust of happiness. And so there are a few themes within those lines that I'm going to want to explore during our conversation today. And part of that is that you didn't begin immersing yourself into poetry until your thirties. So I want to talk a little bit about your life before poetry, because I think that life is also an intrinsic part of your writing. Could you tell us a little bit about your childhood and what stands out?
1: So as you said in the bio, I was basically born and raised in Santa Cruz, California in the 70s. And my mother, when I was a preteen, I think, uh, put herself through um, a master's program in fiction. So I got to witness firsthand probably my first exposure to um, higher education and my first exposure to um, what it is to be absorbed Uh, with the written word. Um, So lying around our house on the tables, on her bed, were, you know, a lot of how-to writing books. So, you know, um, uh, The Artist's Way, which is a very famous book, Um, uh, Natalie Goldberg, um, Joan Didion, you know, the list goes on and on. Predominantly women um, and then there were the novels. Uh, so Toni Morrison was big for my mother. Um, so, but at the time, you know, in the when I was in what, late 80s, early 90s in California, I was. Um, I think my first love, my first artistic love, was music. So there was a lot of singing around the house. My mother had several crates full of records. Um, And there was also a lot of dancing around the house. So there, you know, anything from Stevie Wonder to Crosby, Stills, and Nash to Aretha Franklin, um, you know, it it was from Motown to folk to um, uh, soundtracks to movies, especially musicals. Um, So that, I think, informed me before I ever made made my way to books. Um, and my love for literature. Um, And that was what I saw myself doing, what I wanted to do. So I was definitely more of an embodied child. I like to be in my body. I like to move. I love to sing. I love to dance. Um, I mean, I was the kid that would, when I, my aunt, who was only about seven years older than me, I saw her perform As Rizzo in Greece (laughs) in her high school production and I don't know I must have been like 11 or something or 10 and I was mesmerized I just you know she was the coolest thing ever um, and that's what I wanted to do was you know dance and sing in some capacity so that's really where what I fell in love with when I was younger and books (laughs) and reading and especially writing just were not at all. I mean, it wasn't that I never thought about it. It was that I thought about it and said, no, because I saw my mom, um, it, you know, pulling her hair out and wadding up papers and throwing them in the trash. And it just seemed very isolating and um, kind, of, kind of lonely and boring. And I didn't want to do that at that age. Um, uh, yeah. And I fell in love with reading sort of in my teenage years. Um, I think first James Baldwin. I read um, uh, not because of our name <laughs> connection, but I, but I read um, Giovanni's Room, and was just mesmerized. Uh, so he was kind of my first literature love. And then, of course, my mom turned me on to Toni Morrison, um, The Bluest Eye, and Sula, and those books. And then I think I really went down the rabbit hole with literature when I discovered. Uh, f- sort of fantasy novels, so Marion Zimmer Bradley's, um, this is the first time ever that I forgot the name of this book, but it was about, it was a reimagining of the women of King Arthur's Court, Guinevere, and and all of those characters, and it was sort of centering them, and it was, you know, about set in the time when um, Christianity sort of took over the the, you know, Celtic, Um, uh, faiths and beliefs. um, And I just was mesmerized, and I just read a lot of that. Um, So I think that was sort of my artistic trajectory uh, from my childhood.
0: You shared with me that you wouldn't necessarily describe yourself as a a traditional student. (laughs) No. So... What then happened in terms of your exploring what you did want to study and how you did want to perhaps move, you know, into the world creatively?
1: Sure. Well, I had so many interests. You know, there was the dancing, there was the singing, there was, um, you know, I loved uh, Barbara Streisand. <laughs> her, her, you know, Funny Girl was one of my favorite uh, musicals that I would watch again and again. Um but I was also a very shy, a very insecure child, um, like many of us were at that time. And I was too scared to do what performing required, which was auditioning and putting yourself out there and letting yourself be judged, um, or, or turned away, you know? Um, and so I had this very vibrant inner life and fantasy life in terms of what I gravitated to at home. But um, it I, when I tried to kind of go for it, my fear would just take over. Um, and I was in, I think, you know, Santa Cruz is a predominantly white town, little beach town, you know, known for surfing and sun and all of that. And it's a beautiful town. But as a young um, brown girl in this town, there were, uh, I didn't see myself represented. And so in school, I think I was a fine student in elementary school, but heading into junior high, I think the it just became very apparent what I was, you know, where I was living. Um, and I started to get a really bitterness for um, for education in general, um, and how the kinds of stories they were, they were, you know, shoving down our throat as this is happening right now. This is very prominent in the world. So, um, so I just wasn't, you know, very interested in school and so much so that I think around 17 in the middle of my final, my senior year in high school, I dropped out and, um, it became a source of tension. You know, my mom and I were kind of arguing more than usual. And she just finally said, you know, if you're not going to do this, I'm tired of this arguing. So just um, you can drop out, but you're not going to sit around doing nothing or watching TV. And when you turn 18, you're going to go to community college. And that's what I did. And um, I went to community college in Santa Cruz. And, and it was actually really great because I finally... Um, experimented with theater. And I did behind the scenes, I was, I did, um, speaking of Barbara Streisand and Funny Girl, they actually did that show. <laughs> and I did the lighting and the sound for it. So it was behind the scenes. Um, and then I was taking classes and acting and really challenging myself and trying to overcome my fears. Because I knew that I had an idea of the kind of person I wanted to be artistically and just in general in the world. And I didn't want to let my fears prevent me from accessing that person forever. Um, And so I was really being intentional about kind of doing things to break me out of my comfort zone.
0: In terms of breaking yourself out of the comfort zone, Mm -hmm. then you did spend a little time working in an administrative role at Harvard. So you were in Boston for a little while. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so my understanding is you then went to New York City, mm-hmm. and the the fantasy idea of being a songwriter is what you were pursuing.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's as, if it was for me as intentional as all of that, I think. Um, so there was a bit of time from community college and the Boston-Harvard years where I spent a lot of time making up for the fact that I dropped out of high school. So I went back to community college in Seattle and, you know, took all the classes that I never took, and then um, eventually got into Smith College as a non-traditional student. And that's how I made my way out east. Um, and Smith was great. I mean, it's you know, complicated when you're a non-traditional student, but it was a wonderful time. Uh, and then when I made it to Boston, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I ended up working at Harvard, um, realizing very quickly that office work was not for me, at least not full time, and that I wanted to have control over my time, over my hours. And I didn't want a nine to five job. Um, And I wanted space to experiment creatively after, I don't know, six years of office work plus school. And I didn't know what that looked like, but I knew that I loved, as I said before, I loved being embodied. I loved giving massages and getting them, and so it just kind of fell in my lap. So I went to massage school, and massage school is what opened up enough time in my, you know, I don't know, spiritual psyche uh, to start writing and start, um, you know, letting myself go in that sense, and so the writing and the trying my hand at writing songs kind of um, merged. you know. So I was writing fiction, and then I started trying to write songs, and that's when I moved to New York. I didn't move to New York to write songs, but I ended up having a job opportunity that brought me to New York.
0: Your mother at some point said to you, you've always been an artist, you didn't have an art. (laughs) And I'm curious, where does that fit into this timeline, Mm -hmm. this evolution of your artistry?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a really interesting statement that she made, and she's said it a number of times. I I think I agree with her. I mean, I think so much of my young melancholy, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about that later, when I was young of just feeling... I never labeled it as depression at all, but it was just... Um, yearning, longing, uh, dissatisfaction with, with where I was, um, and that and this, you know, was prominent probably from teenager to maybe mid-20s, um, and I think it was because of my fears and my shyness and my insecurity at the time didn't allow me to dive into one of the many art forms that I, that I loved so much, you know? Um, And so I think that's what she meant is that you've always had that sensibility. You've always gravitated to these things. And what was torturing you so much when you were younger is that, you didn't allow yourself to have the art to do the practice. Um, And everyone in my life, when I started writing, when I was living in Boston, were shocked because (laughs) because I came to be a lover of reading kind of later than, you know, a lot of my friends who love reading, you know, in my late teens. And writing, as I said before, was never something I wanted to do because it was what my mom did. So when I started writing and... I was actually kind of good at it. It was kind of a shock. I mean, I everybody was hundred percent supportive, but it was a little bit surprising. So,
0: yeah. So you're in New York. You're writing. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also working, but this creative part of you is is immersing deeper and deeper into writing. But at some point, you would appear to make a much more explicit dive deeply into poetry. Yes. What was the catalyst for yeah. that?
1: Well, when I moved to to New to New York to um, start this job, it was another type of admin job. I uh, started going because I would started writing fiction back in Boston. I applied to this um, uh, Center for Fiction. They were having this workshop, and I applied. I got in, and I met some writers. It was, and those were probably my first writing buddies. Was through that program. Um, I started writing plays. I my friend turned me on to this group in New York. I forget where it was, where you can bring a play in progress, and there's just actors that show up, professional actors, and they, um, you just kind of sign in, and they pick up your script and they just act it out. And it was uh, one of the most exciting things I had experienced to see my words, you know, develop right in front of me, and just to see how they, um, where they put their pauses and their their emphasis was really powerful um so I was doing all of that um and then I also just you know said why not let's you know go back and see about um singing and so I found a woman and was taking voice lessons from her so it was the writing it was the singing it was a very you know kind of artistic experience for me um in New York and then um I was diagnosed with breast cancer and everything kind of stopped. Um, and, and I think it was through the songwriting, which happened before my diagnosis, I was sharing it, maybe a song I had written with my mom, and she said something about, you know, this something about it reading more like a poem, you know, and and I hadn't hadn't thought about that. and I was like, really? You think so interesting, you know, And so then I just, Something about the combination of this terrifying diagnosis and um, not having a lot of control over my life and not really feeling motivated for the taking lessons and going uh, to this woman for vocal lessons, I just kept writing and kept writing and kept started reading poetry more. Um, and that's how I kind of found my sort of a failed songwriter, I guess. But also, but also something about the poem, uh, the, sh- the the brevity of it, you know, um, and not having to worry about plot, which was not something that I loved so much about fiction, really catered to my needs in that very in that very scary moment.
0: So you mentioned that shift into a, a form, poetry, mm-hmm. that perhaps. I'm not saying that poems don't have plot in their own way, but, sure, but maybe yeah. a little less emphasis on that, maybe a little more emphasis on emotion and imagery. Yes, exactly. And then yes. you talked about poems perhaps responding more to your need. Would you speak a little more about yeah, that? Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I hadn't read a ton of poetry. I had read some up to that point, but when I started diving into it more intentionally, I became really attracted to... Its ability to convey emotion without necessarily in nonlinear ways, I guess. Um, so, the, the w- work a single image can do, you know, the sort of wild imaginative leaps a poem will take from one line to the next, from one stanza to the next. Uh, and that just resonated with me in the moment. And the ability to express what I was feeling through those tools without necessarily having to have this longer relationship with a single poem I mean there are long poems but I was really dealing with a you know single page shorter poems and it just it took it took me over you know I can't really think of another way to say it and I just I haven't it's kind of cliche but I haven't really looked back since then, um, and I ended up moving. My job ended not because of my diagnosis, um, but for it was ending anyway. And so I was just at a point where stay in this big city by myself, and you know, go on unemployment while I finish treatment, or go back to Seattle where my family is and get more support. And um, so
0: that's what I did. Yeah. So you've been writing poetry since then. Mm-hmm as well as studying academically, Mm -hmm. too. And obviously, I want to talk about some of your poems. I want to hear some of your poems, too, please. Mm -hmm. Sure. But let's quickly talk about um, the book and some of the themes that are emerging in your writing. So the book is called Bone Language. Mm -hmm. How did that title emerge? (laughs) Painstakingly.
1: Um, (laughs) I had several uh, different titles. I think at one point I had a title called Some Violence, but I also had different poems in that version. Um, This book, it has been, I guess you might say six, seven years in the making. So the first version of it came out of my MFA thesis and I graduated in 2017. Um, And it has probably had 678 iterations since then and as i write more poems i add them i remove other ones that don't quite work i think i finally had the the foundation of what the book is today maybe about 3 years ago and of course it's been you know revised a little and tweaked a little but it's been a while you know in the making And I think it was during a workshop. Uh, We were workshopping uh, chapbooks in a class I was taking at UNL. And I had titled that chapbook, which included some of the poems that are in my current book, my forthcoming book. I had titled it Her Bone Language. And one of my uh, fellow poets and friends, Jess Polay, who has a beautiful book out right now, when she was reading it, she's like, why don't we just get rid of that her, you know? And it just clicked and made so much sense. So that's kind of how that came about. But it makes sense. I mean, if you, when you read the book, the book is very much about what it is to be in the body of a woman, what it is to be a woman who was also biracial in this world, what it is to navigate um, desire, what it is to navigate disease, what it is to exist in all of these identities in this post-Trump era that I engage that a little bit. I think the bone aspect is fitting. And then I also um, have some poems where I'm very interested in the role of language and how language is used specifically to contain, right? But also the work that we can do as poets to use language and kind of disrupt it or mystify it in different interesting ways and so i think that's how those two
0: words kind of came to be yeah talking about language in your poem the mess a body makes Mm -hmm. towards the end you use this description about nor the bone to lick the red language from my fingers glistening and in your poem what's been case you talk about words as arrows Mm -hmm. and so there does seem to be this really interesting connection between the potency Mm -hmm. and the power of language and our embodiment, the the physicality of how we present in the world. Mm -hmm. Is there something we miss about language, something that you're really focused on about language and how it can affect us, maybe how it can affect you? Mm I was
1: aware of my body and how I was perceived in the world as a black woman, a biracial woman, um, as a woman who, when I was, you know, was perceived as, as attractive and what that means and how that is reflected um, and the response by the male population. All of those things were things that I navigated um, throughout my life. Um, But I wasn't really thinking about the words in a kind of critical sense. And then when I started writing, all of that just kind of came to the forefront. And I think so much of language has been used, especially if you're in a marginalized body, to limit both how we can move in the world, but also to influence how we even think about ourselves, right? And it's been weaponized in big ways. It's embedded in institutions that have, you know, massive reverberations throughout society. And so being able to kind of highlight that, but also turn it around, kind of lift up the veil, you know, really expose what language is doing and in different ways to use them it has been liberating, you know, in a sense. And it's still something that I'm, that I'm continuing to, to um, explore, but I think that idea that I could kind of have control over language and its impact on me was one of the first things that I gravitated to, I guess, when I, when I started writing, yeah.
0: It's now a good time ask for a reading?
1: Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to read The Mess Body Makes. The Mess Body Makes. My mother offered me her history, licking the fat off each gristled story. Her fingers shiny with the destruction of her youth. I followed carefully behind, Consuming the world with unwritten poems sewed into the hem of my dress. A dull razor tucked beneath my tongue. At the clearing in the woods, I built a church out of the tender violence of words. I wallow at the altar and worship the mess a body makes, barricaded inside its own hailstorm of hunger. I never learned how to pray but perhaps the animal body is all I need in the end. Perhaps when my words fail, I will open my mouth wide only to close it again, to bite down hard one last time, to gnaw the bone, to lick the red language from my fingers glistening. This next poem um, uh, is one of the, newer additions to the manuscript, and um, it's called Like a Soft Horn. I saw through the evening a purple light. The light held a sound. I kept squinting at it, trying to hear its octaves, but all I heard were birds, and so I tried my wings, straightened my back the way one does when attempting at good posture, and did a little shimmy to loosen them. they wouldn't budge. I could feel the constant pressure between my shoulder blades. It was painful to hear the birds so full of flight and song. But as I stood there, I thought about my mother's hunger all those years ago. In college, eating the goat's liver pulled straight out of the animal's still warm body, when few of the other students would touch it. Not even to the dismay of the teacher, the men. Only two women lifted the organ to their mouths, one after the other, wiping blood from their chins, smiling at how creature they'd become. I want many things, and sometimes it's hard to hold all this desire in one body. If I had another body that could store my desire, a body that looked like me but didn't have the organs, muscles, and bones taking up all the space, perhaps this body would play a series of songs made up solely of the sounds of my future desire, a mixtape of sorts, but without titles or narrative arc. The sound that would stand out the most would be a rustling of leaves, like the rustle squirrels make playing at the base of trees but not exactly there would be more depth to it a wateriness rustling water yes dry and wet then a chiming somewhere in the distance not like bell chimes more like a soft horn like coltrane but also full of silence a horn chime full of silence And listening to this mixtape of my desire that is to come, I would think, yes, this is a true thing. And my body that is not me would turn a blinding purple.
0: Thank you for reading. that. thank you. You've talked about some of the themes that you explore in your work, and they draw on the experiences that you've had and the questions you have about what it is to exist in the world and how it is you exist in the world. And you mentioned being uh, of mixed race, mm-hmm. and in your poem, Call Me By My Name, you describe yourself as the brown daughter of a white woman who voted blue and the brown daughter of a black man from Dallas who died, as black men do, too soon. And you use your name to make it a f- focus on those potentially marginal existences, those perceptions of otherness and the liminal experiences that might exist in those landscapes. How did those experiences show up for you and and how are you trying to tackle them in poetry?
1: Mm, That's a big question. Well, it's it's ongoing work. I'd like to say that I'm done. (laughs) I would really like to say that I'm done writing about my mother, done writing about my father, uh, but I know that it's not true and I'm a firm believer that we write what we write until we don't need to write about it anymore. But I think it'll shift, you know. I think there was a lot of poems that have never been published that I started writing during my diagnosis period that hopefully no one will ever read were really cathartic (laughs) in the sense that they they were just allowing me to express to talk directly about what you're saying is that kind of liminal space. And it also, importantly, which I don't think I've mentioned here, is that it gave me an outlet for rage. And rage and anger were not emotions that I was given much space to when I was a child in my family. But I'd also say that I think most women in this society Uh, are not giving a lot of space for rage. And so being able to really just express through writing what it is to be a brown, a Black woman in society, what it is to live with the understanding that I have to navigate the prospect of violence all the time because I'm a woman, you know, things like, not walking down the street at night alone by myself, right? Just things that I, you know, this is just what we know to do. And um, until you really stop and think about why that is, it's just what you do. Um, You know, how you hold your keys in your hand when you're walking to get your car if it's night and no one else is around, you know? That really formed a lot of my sort of early poetry. And it's still there, but I think... In lieu of anger and rage, something I wasn't really allowed to show when I was younger, what I did show was this intense melancholy and longing. And I think, and that showed up in the form of, I had a ritual when I was younger of going to see movies at. Uh, the local well any theater really but there was this lovely little place that might still exist in Santa Cruz called the Nickelodeon and it was an alternative theater that played a lot of the like art house um, films and I would go there and watch films uh, by myself and I would cry in the theater you know and it was was always in the day I never wanted to go to a night movie it was always in the day when it was beautiful in Santa Cruz because it's always beautiful in Santa Cruz so the idea that I would you know take hours out of my beautiful day to go sit in a dark theater and feel stuff is something that I think I took for granted and didn't really analyze until I was a lot older. But I think it was my own way of dealing with stuff that I didn't really have much space for. And so that is coming back in interesting ways now. I think I'm a little bit more focused on looking at that both as a catharsis and a, and a replacement for rage when I was young, but also as part of what it is to be creative for me and kind of trying to embrace it not as a negative, but looking at it, looking at the creative power of those emotions, I guess.
0: yeah. When we spoke a month or so ago, you described that sense of longing as being a feature of your life and something you wanted to explore more. Mm-hmm. And you talked about poetry as the art that makes you want to jab the minor chords of everything. <laughs> and then yeah. you pulled out Nina Simone <laughs> and Leonard Cohen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had friends growing up that would always be baffled that I was when I was feeling sad or I got my heart broken. I wanted to listen to heartbreak music. I wanted to be surrounded with art that enhanced what I was feeling Versus the other you know there are people who if you're sa- sad you want to listen to happy music right no, that was never what I wanted to do and so I took a lot I spent a lot of time watching films that broke my heart listening to music that broke my heart, even if my heart wasn't breaking but I think even that is probably a lie because I think I think I probably had a broken heart and just didn't know it and I don't mean you know romance broken heart but but uh A larger broken heart that is connected to something else you know yeah I don't know I I just that was I think that was my creative outlet was uh, you know surrounding myself by that and it took the form of music like you said Nina Simone a lot of jazz standards so you know Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald and Dinah Washington and all those songs about sort of unrequited love and that they all am, had one thing in common, which was this this sort of yearning, this, this longing for something else. And sometimes that longing was articulated in the form of a romantic interest, but I think even that the singers were even speaking to something a little bit larger, a little bit deeper than that.
0: So back to your poem the end of sorrow is not happiness is the title and and you say that you have a, a distrust of happiness <laughs> so it feels to be you know that's a, a segue from what you're describing mm-hmm. i'm sure you're like most of us and you reference this in in the poem you know the pursuit of happiness is written into america right right but that doesn't mean that it's a journey we should or can take and i'm, I'm just I'm sure saying a distrust of happiness is not the same as saying you don't want to be happy or you only want to live into the feeling of longing. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What is your relationship to happiness?
1: Yeah, I'm still figuring that out. But what I have learned so far is I think I've always been someone that was pretty easygoing, not too moody, at least around other people. Happy, I guess it would have been described as I have moments of happiness and I have moments of joy and I have fun, you know, but I don't think it is a it's not a constant state of being. Right. And so much of a narrative around happiness and achieving happiness, you know, take this yoga class to find happiness buy this product to get find happiness achieve a certain lifestyle all of that is built around i think is entrenched in not just the united states but a lot of western societies you know it's it's entrenched in capitalism right i think there's ways in which people who maybe don't embody that particular kind of happiness are penalized you know uh, in different ways and i think it's especially harmful for marginalized folks. I mean, I have a lot of friends who come from other countries and are navigating that ideal in a space. A country that says, look how happy we are, look how perfect we are, and so much is not happy and so much is not perfect um, is very discombobulating. And, And I think on that level, I'm really interested in in looking at that from a scholarly lens and writing through that and also just re-examining my own relationship to happiness. And I've thrown the word around like everyone else most of my life, but is it really true and what does that mean? And so, yeah, I would say that that statement in the poem is accurate. I do have a distrust of this country's idea of happiness and that it is something that you should just be and become and a place that you should res- reside once you've made it there is is false.
0: In your work, you do explore what might be regarded as the misperceptions around light as opposed to mm-hmm. dark, maybe around our attitudes to death and knowing that we're dying as opposed to living life without that knowledge, mm-hmm. but blissful in the opportunity for pleasures to come, mm-hmm. whether or not death interrupts that process mm-hmm. or not. I guess I'm curious about your relationship with those subjects, given you've shared that you had a breast cancer diagnosis Mm -hmm. and and had to confront that. And Mm -hmm. I know you've confronted that recovery and and period of time in the company of other people that have Mm -hmm. cancer diagnosis too. And that's informed your writing. And then you spoke about your parents and and you've written about your father's demise and and Mm -hmm. how you've had to come to terms with Not only your relationship with him, but also this idea of what is life beyond that moment. So I'm just curious about how you're thinking about those subjects in your poetry, Mm. about light and dark and, and death and its utility in helping us live better lives.
1: Yeah. I think when I had my diagnosis and I was faced, there was about a week or two between getting the diagnosis and actually getting to meet with the surgeon to actually find out what my diagnosis means. Because, you know, there's numbers and grades and stages and all of these things. And if you're not in the medical field, it's hard to kind of um, uh, break that apart. And so I didn't know. I didn't know if my diagnosis was a death sentence or if it was just You know, we've done this a million times. All you got to do is get some treatment and you're good. And that is even a bit reductive. You know, of course, it's not quite that easy. But um, so there was a lot of fear. And I, I, you can't live in that kind of fear for very long. It's not sustainable. Um, And so I very quickly turned to whatever I was perceiving as, you know, my um, I don't know if it's a higher power, or God. You know, I'm not. I'm not a Christian, but I, you know, was meditating and praying and and doing whatever that looked like for me. And I remember very distinctly wishing that I had had more of a relationship with death in my life before that moment. Like, how would my experience of that diagnosis? Of course, it would be scary, but if there was more of a kind of consistent engagement with death as just a part of life instead of death as this thing that should be avoided at all costs that is horrible and not just part of the cycle. How would my reaction have been? I mean, of course I was in my 30s, so it was I didn't want to die and it would have been scary. But I think that that idea has import, informed what I think about and what I write about and what I read. And also there's just a, uh, there's loss, you know, there's there's surviving cancer or any kind of uh, life-threatening disease, and then there's life after that. And it's always ongoing. So we're getting very personal, so let's <laughs> continue to do so. Um, there's the loss of knowing that you're n- never going to have biological children. And so that's a deep loss that reverberates in my writing in different ways. It reverberates in me re- writing about my relationship with my mother. It reverberates in me writing about, you know, a variety of things. And and I think when, you, when you're dealing with that kind of loss, uh, you think about, I think, your own parents and maybe their childhood in different ways, right? And so for my dad, um, we were not very close and he had a, He was an, you know um, an alcoholic and probably other things. And we had a relationship, so we talked occasionally, but we were not close. And I wasn't really raised with him. So I think when he died, what really struck me was this massive just sadness. It wasn't the sadness that comes from missing somebody that you're close to. Like if my mom passed away, that I don't even, you know, that would be... Heartbreaking in more than one way, Um, but with my my dad, it wasn't missing this person that I knew well or this relationship that I had, but instead thinking about all the ways in which he wasn't given the opportunity to become, you know, who he could have become. You know, he grew up in Dallas, um, uh, in in the fifties and sixties, so the, you know, uh, the the intense racism in the South, Uh, I guess, some people don't consider Texas the South, but that's a different debate. (laughs) But, you know, the racism of his surroundings, as well as, you know, abuse that he suffered in his own family, um, just set him up without a lot of tools, you know, and I think I just mourned who he could have become, if he had different opportunities, right. Um, And, and that, that really broke my heart. And I think that was the, that's the thing that I come to when I think about him most. Um, and so I think, you know, navigating in my poetry, these various, lo- like the ways in which my, my dad lo- had loss and suffered from loss, even if he couldn't articulate it. Um, the loss that I've, you know, endured in different capacities. Um, and just kind of looking around the world at the ways in which as a, you know, human <laughs> population, we're all losing and experiencing loss in different ways. And I think having that parallel to my interest in in sort of closely looking at this idea of happiness has been a really interesting, you know, balance. And, and they kind of are, are speaking to each other in interesting ways and still revealing themselves to me.
0: Is it maybe time just to read one more poem?
1: Sure, sure. Is there one you would like me to read?
0: I don't know if, given what we were just talking about, if Father Weaver is the pushcart prize winning and it's so lyrical and beautiful and longing is, mm-hmm. is, is so drenched throughout it. Mm-hmm. But then also this poem that you shared, film script on the open mm-hmm. road and anti-drama, also feels like it's expressing some of the things you've mm-hmm. been talking about. So I, I don't know. Okay. What would you, you can pick Okay. Or on neither of
1: those. I mean, this is your show. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's see. Um, I think I'll read Film Script because I rarely ever read it in, at readings. Um, and then I'll read it at the end of Sorrow after that. Film Script On the Open Road and Anti Drama. It troubles me to think of death, not the last breath, hellbent on one final note but the aftermath that those who come close claim is a bleached white expanse of endless light. I don't take comfort in this. I prefer to think of my father surrounded by a luxurious darkness, chocolate bougainvilleas, molten glass, silk sounds of Marvin Gaye or Pendergrass. I see him on his Harley riding at cruise speed tires churning rocks and terrain behind him. There are no speeding tickets there, no police, no alcoholism, just a black man and an open road without a destination. The end of sorrow is not happiness. I've gained many things since cancer, poetry, extra weight, A distrust of happiness, the way this country names it a pursuit, a destination most are never meant to reach. No matter how many shovels we break digging, there is always more earth, more history, more heft required to fail. Even if I could make my way through their labyrinth of promises without coming undone, I'm not sure I'd want to give up my sorrows. All my reckless patients wandering through untamed hallways. I've grown accustomed to their defiance, to the melancholy of women unbolting private alienations. I prefer this fracture of a home we've built together without borders, without hustle, and the birds pay us no mind here, nor the trees, nor moss. So much endless, brilliant moss.
0: Thank you for reading those. I sometimes have this image of uh, writers working at the craft, working at the material. And yet I'm wondering, given what you said about how long it's taken you to pull the book, Bone Language, into the form over several years, to get it to a point where you're ready to release it into the world. Mm-hmm. And you've also shared that there are some subjects that you're ready to maybe not let go, but to move beyond, whether that's relationships with your parents or other issues around rage or other topics. And it just makes me wonder, instead of you working out your craft, do you actually have to change or grow or mature or somehow earn the poem? It's there, but you're not ready.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's both. Um, I think the work is the practice of writing, um, wh- whatever that looks like to you. I mean, some writers I know are they get up at 5 a.m. and write for two or three hours before their kids get up to go to school. Some writers... Um, you know, experiment with language on a consistent basis, but but really don't write poems except for every couple of months or something like that, you know. So it really just depends on who you are as a writer. But it's the practice that enables you to have the craft ready at hand so that when you have earned the poem or matured into the poem that you're able to do it justice, you know. And the poem about my father, Father Weaver, the one I didn't read just now was one of those. So he passed away in 2015 and I was in my MFA program and I immediately tried writing poems about it. And I remember my um, advisor at the time kind of saying like, I'm sure this was very great for your, you know, cathartic and and healing but as a poem, eh, you know, and I, and I completely agree, you know, but he said, I think you need more time. I think you need more distance. And I think that's um, that's been very true for me. I tend to be a poet of reflection rather than in the moment. I write in the moment about things, but not necessarily poetry. I don't write, like, for example, I haven't written a lot about living in Nebraska, but I'm sure I'll start writing about that once I move. You know, (laughs) that just tends to be how I
0: work. You very kindly read your poem, Like a Soft Horn. Mm -hmm. And in that poem, you say, I was many things, and sometimes it is hard to hold all this desire in one body. And so I'm curious, what do you desire? What can you not contain? (laughs) And in the words of that poem what would make you turn a blinding purple?
1: <laughs> oh, so many things. Um, <laughs> probably too many uh, to to name here. I mean, I think it is really, there are specific things that I desire, sure. You know, yes, I desire, I want to travel more. You know, I want tangible things that I could name and list. But then I think there's also a desire It's a feeling that I think is akin to longing that is not tethered to a specific outcome or a specific thing. And I think so much of it comes from feeling restricted in your body, at least for me, especially as a woman, you know, uh, we were uh, joking and talking before the interview about my time in Aspen, where I did a residency, and I the point of the residency, besides the writing time, is to give writers the opportunity to explore the the beautiful natural environment. And I have this not very rational or rational, depending on who you are, fear of lion well, not lions, but mountain lions, bears, and just large, large animals. And so I didn't feel comfortable or safe enough wandering around. And so there's this desire to, what would it be to be that free in your body, right? What would it be to not have those fears and those worries? And there's that's a kind of desire. So yeah, I mean, I think they're tangible things but, uh, or, or experiences, but also just kind of a bit, bigger yearning to be almost bodiless in a way, if that even makes sense.
0: It sounds so freeing.
1: <laughs> right, doesn't
0: it? <laughs> yeah. My guest today has been poet Jamaica Baldwin, whose book, Bone Language, is forthcoming this summer 2023 from Yes, Yes Books. Jamaica, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you. It's been lovely.
0: Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.